0: The artist Maser, known for his large-scale murals and prints, some of his most prominent works include the Dublin City murals You Are Alive and Don't Be Afraid and his repeal logo, which became synonymous with the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment in 2018. Mazur has had a varied artistic career, teaching art in Mountjoy prison, prison, setting up his own studio atelier now, and exhibiting in Sotheby's in Paris. Now, a second solo exhibition of his work is on view at Gormley's Fine Art in Dublin, and Delighted to say that Mazer is with me in, in studio this evening. Al I suppose we were kind of trying to work out between us when we yeah. last chatted. It was <laughs> it was two thousand and nineteen. I I reckon yeah. was when it was before lockdown and before all all the madness happened. Yeah.
1: And we'll get to the art. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but
0: the big event in your life, I guess, has been the arrival of your first son, your first child.
1: Yeah, Alfie. Yeah, he arrived uh, first of February this year. So that's been great. It's been um I don't know where to start with that. Yeah, well, does, does it? I suppose it's.
0: it's at the birth of a child is a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's does incredible. It feed, does it feed into what you're doing? Has it? Does it affect the way you work? What has the What has the outcome been there?
1: Yeah, well, I think the whole life change is is there, and then that sort of feeds into your work. I think um, I can speak for me as an artist, but you're using sort of your painting as like your your release, your meditation, your sort of. Uh, decrypting so on a paint I'm sort of trying to figure things out and I think there's been a lot of change over the year and Mm. things that you could on paper would look like the conflict or contrast and so putting that on a painting sort of you sort of are able to sort of figure out what what makes sense there and um, a lot of it's just sort of figuring it out I'm, I'm using the painting as a tool to sort of What's, what change has been happening this yeah. year.
0: And I guess uh, w- with the title that we have uh, on the exhibition, uh, Lost Time Found Again, <laughs> it kinda, it kind of was was there a, a, a misbalance there that you've t- kind of
1: sorted out? Yeah, I think it was probably leading up to fatherhood and the narrative that I had in my head, you sort of hear these lines being said, that's the end of this now or this is that. So anticipating that, um, recalibrating time, um, worrying that you'll have no time, and what I learned is that it's just, for me anyway, and D, it's just um, uh, sort of reworking the time and where do priorities lie. And D, is, D is Alfie's D, mother, yeah. Yes, yes, uh, my fiancé. And uh, where do our priorities lie? And they're actually, for us anyway, for me, I can speak, there is sort of the same amount of time. It's just maybe quieting down on other things and... Well, that's funny because I'll
0: I'll tweet one of the images from the new exhibition uh, right now. Um, It's called Moving Together. There are a couple of titles across, uh, (laughs) across the exhibition that really have this sense of you know this I suppose that things are time and space seem to be working together rather than against each other yeah uh, I can describe the work very colourful the, the, the yeah. paintings are they're all yeah. they're, they're all of a size aren't they
1: the, the paintings in the exhibition yeah they vary in size quite large to smaller sort of more intimate paintings um, variety and scale variety of colour and scale are quite important and everything sort of working in harmony tying into that theme again yeah
0: and, and it, a lot of very vibrant colours in it and moving yeah. together at RTE Arena, by the way, if you want to see the image that Alice talking to us about this evening, uh, Mazers moving together. Yeah. Um oranges, very vibrant orange, vibrant green, strong blues and reds in there as yeah. well. There's, there's,
1: there's a lot of uh, contrasting colours, hot and cold, a lot of contrasting forms, textures, but if you can for, find a sort of harmony between all those pieces working together within the sort of boundaries of a canvas, that's sort of something I'm trying to communicate, mm. feeding into my my yeah. own life. and
0: Yeah, so that, I mean, obviously, these are abstract paintings yeah. in that, you know, with certainly there's nothing figurative in there, but yeah. it, it, in terms of the making of them, yeah. Is it is it a is it a quick splash of working things out, or is it a very slow process of trying to balance those shapes, those colors, bit of Yeah,
1: there's a lot of uh, rubbing your chin and thinking for a <laughs> while, and then bursts of energy. You know, and uh, you'll do it, you'll execute it, and then you you you, you let that sit and it digest. So I'll 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 do a lot of body of work at one time, and then it gives me space to be analysing mm. and thinking and it, you don't switch off for those few months while you're creating that work and you're constantly thinking about it again, how to rework it and and then you hopefully get to an, an end point. The end point's always there and you just hope that it ends on the right result.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose a, a time comes when if you if you go much further a bit like a sculptor where,
1: where... Yeah, you can maul it like, you know... You've messed it. Yeah, you messed it up. So I guess just through experience you sort of know where to restrain and hold back and try not to be impulsive and I usually, you know, it's a shot and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, and these, they've definitely been a lot more considered, a lot more energy put into each one. Right, so
0: the, the energy and, and a lot of the time was spent thinking before you went near the canvas at all?
1: Yeah, yeah, most of the time. But then you'll get the, you'll get the itch and you just want to go paint. <laughs> go and for you, it. And you got to go with that. Yeah, yeah. you can't sort of analyse too. I feel um, sometimes in my career as an artist, I was overanalyzing and thinking too much into it rather than just going with the moment. And you sort of have to feed off that energy, if if you're good to go, you go and you paint, and um, because it mightn't come back then for a few yeah, days.
0: Because I know that um, you, you've also spoken about how meditation has started or has is part yeah. of ha- helping how you're approaching your work. What how do you what how do you go about that meditation, and how do you think it feeds into what you're
1: doing? Um, healthy habits. Um, I've I find I sort of talk about this terminology of uh, integrated lifestyle, and everything sort of feeds off each mm-hmm. other. So I've learned over the years, in most recent years if I. Practice of sort of little rituals in the morning, like doing a morning meditation or going to the gym, it will definitely set me up better for the day. That's pretty obvious. Um, other tools I'd use is journaling. During lockdown, I have got into my head quite a lot. So simple to sort of get out of my head and write it. And I found those sort of tools really good to set up. Then it sets me up for the studio really well. i go in and just sort of uh, get, get to the flow quicker. Of, of and, and you were
0: saying to me before we came to ours well, you, you you found that you're a morning person that's when the energy yeah, luckily, and the yeah, creativity
1: yeah, so at the house. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So it's usually 5am sort of thing and it works out well some mornings are more tired than others and uh, we get up and play and get some bits done and, and I get on sort of on a good day you know I, I get to we get to hang out and I get to do my rituals no. and go to work for a few hours and come back. And so it's all sort of integrated and working. I'm trying to work everything together. I have that no. sort of flexibility with my, you know, job, quote unquote.
0: Yeah, I, there's a whole series of paintings called, with the title, The Magic Number. <laughs>
1: nah. and it's
0: the magic number one the magic to, number two so is know. it the same painting in, uh, not the same thing, but you know it, it's a series of paintings called the magic number
1: yeah the magic number is three there and that's like yeah. paying reference to my little family me, D, and Alfie and it's um, we'll
0: tweet that one now actually the magic number three can you see the, the screen uh, I know here? It. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've been looking at it you that. made <laughs> it you know <laughs> it yeah.
1: Um, but yeah so there's, there's the same imprint across all three paintings uh, but w- underneath that layer it has its own variety its opinions its thoughts it's pr- like you know this, um, but they're all sitting within the same sort of framework there and that was just a loose sort of team I had and it motivated me then to sort of paint the painting and make sure I did it right
0: so it, it suggests me then that the the magic number one the magic number two the magic number three is that you know you you and D U D and Alfie is that yeah, what we're yeah, talking about there? yeah
1: that's it just a, a trio a triptych in, in some way it's communicating like that so um, I like the idea of repetition as well in paintings and it gave me an opportunity of just sort of the things that are important to me now and those those two people are very important to me. So uh, Yeah,
0: I, I wondered about the emotion then of making paintings like these, which might be, be different from the the emotion of making other types of paintings, mm. which I mean, there's nothing more personal really, is there yeah. than, than your immediate family in, in, in yeah. some ways, yourself, your your partner, your children yeah. or your
1: child. It's the first time I've sort of done it because coming from a public space where you, you're sort of communicating to the public, you mm. know, but I think the, the things that I'm addressing here in the paintings, even though they're very abstract, we can all sort of resonate with and take, take a piece from it. So I'm still, even though it was just a good motivator for me. And again, there's been a lot of change this year. So I was using painting as sort of a, a tool to sort of figure out things. And these, this is me sort of yeah. figuring things out in, in, in paintings.
0: And apart from the arrival of of the child and the, the joy yeah. that all of that brings, there was the the big uh, Sotheby's event in in Paris. Yeah, was, a big a, how big a deal was that for you? You know, we did you feel it at the time? Sotheby's sold um, your piece. Glen was for sale, and the Glen rather was for sale, yeah. and then they asked you over.
1: So yeah, yeah, yeah. They they uh, they asked me whether I'd be a part of their auction, and uh, yeah, I was really surprised and taken back and chuffed. Uh, I, there was yeah, there was a lot of. A lot of different emotions with that, I guess. Um I guess it's like, for me, it was a, a nice marker that, okay, even though it's not the definitive purpose why I'd paint, mm. it's still a nice marker to go, okay, cool, maybe, you know, you're in the right direction here, what you're doing. And, um yeah, they, they auctioned a piece in Paris, and they invited me over then to they'd have a show of the works there and, uh, and other artists. And I spoke just about, just the way I would be now, speak about the process and anything that sort of came to mind <laughs> at the moment.
0: And and what was your sense, you know, as a contemporary Irish artist in Paris, yeah. talking about contemporary Irish art? What was your feeling? Where did you feel you, you fitted into that particular
1: scene? Well, you'll always have, um, what's that saying, like where you're, imposter syndrome. So there's definitely a bit of that as being a young artist there. But then, you know, you take ownership of it and you take... Uh, pride in your work and grateful for that to be there and and being in paris is very it's it's cliche but it is a very inspiring mm. place uh we were over there earlier in the year uh we did an artist residency with culture de irlandes and Dee and i were there she was pregnant at the time actually and uh we just had an amazing time there and we hope to go back again and sort of you would go to places and i would just inherently feel inspired there Um.
0: And did those did that period that residency in particular because th- there was the Sotheby's event, but there was yeah. also that residency as you say in the Irish yeah. Cultural Centre. Did that feed into this exhibition, or is that still bubbling away in the head? If if you know what I mean,
1: um, it was there in my mind because we knew we were going to do a show, and I was speaking with Dee, and I was sort of at the start, to be honest, sort of saying, oh, I want to really manage my expectations and not put a show. And she was sort of very, she was very encouraging to say, you can do it. So. We were because you don't know what to anticipate. We're mm. first-time parents, um, so it was there in my in my head, but I didn't. I hadn't formulated what I was going to paint until pretty much Alfie arrived, and I was like, "Well, this is this is interesting." It was all sort of based on time and color, figuring out time, and I was like, "It's quite an interesting narrative," and trying to get the balance right. And it, had
0: you had you you'd walked? Was it across the island of Ireland <laughs> yeah. before before the arrival
1: of Alfie? Was yeah.
0: that kind of was was there some kind of pilgrimage in
1: your mind? Yeah, of what there was, was going something like there? that. And there, I spoke to a man years ago. I don't know where it was, and he was he was talking about uh, you know the, the the circumference of Ireland. Like, mm. You you'll never really know your country till you walk across it. He was just sort of saying in passing, and so it sort of stuck with me and. Um, he was sort of saying that if 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 you 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 everywhere you go in, in, in Ireland, right, if you drive around here and you remove the outline of the country, you'll realise how little you've travelled. Do you know what I mean? So if I look, i over the Galway loads and Limerick where my family are from. And, and so that sort of stuck with me. And then, yeah, I think coming up to Alfie, I probably wanted to have a marker and I like challenges and endurance and I've done a lot of hill walking and a and, and few mountains and stuff. So I just set it as a, as a task to do. And I, I, that sort of endurance definitely helps me then I bring that into the studio as well.
0: Earlier this year, as well, I suppose, as well, that was very much. It strikes me as a, a kind of a, a gathering yourself ahead of an event, if you, yeah. if you like. You were involved in um, a collaboration with the National Print Museum, and you chose the 1916 Proclamation as your inspiration. And that mm. is clearly the opposite, I suppose, in some ways, or is it? It's a looking back event. What what struck you about the Proclamation in particular? which I suppose, yes, you were looking back at it, but it's a very forward-thinking document.
1: Yeah, but the process is, uh, the process in terms of a traditional printing. Mm. So it sort of resonated well with there and it was there within the space and I was looking at different things and I was like, this would be a good sort of market to take. I wanted the piece to be type-based because it's um, the printing process that we we're using where it's sort of all sort of, um, what would you call it? Called? Different letting and type there. Yeah. So... I just wanted to use the tools that they have within space and I thought it was like a fitting thing. And I took a very, very loose interpretation. I t- took a quote from it and sort of adapted it a bit to to make it a, a, like a standalone sort of piece.
0: And at, at that stage, I mean, I don't know if Alfie was in the offing at that point, so you hadn't any sense of... No, that look. was COVID, yeah, that was um, proper COVID yeah. sort
1: of time and... Uh, it was quiet, So it was actually a really nice time to work on a project like that because it's quite a long process mm. and setting plates up and doing test prints. It's not the way things are now, you can just press print. So it gave her a lot of time and I'd, I'd worked at a lot of fine art print presses before. So it was an enjoyable experience.
0: Now, um, what are you going to do about the walls of the house <laughs> because, of course, when you were younger, I, 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 I've read this, oh, and you've spoken right, yeah. about this before, I think, too. You used the walls of the ho- family home yeah, as your canvas. So, yeah, you can't <laughs> yeah. be saying, Alfie, I can't stop giving that. Out.
1: No, 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 I, I wouldn't. Um, yeah. Um, we don't know yet. It's funny because what's that? Is a, a, a plumber's sink is always leaking or something like that. So <laughs> right, yeah. we probably don't have the best. We've great art collection. We collect. We collect a lot of uh, young contemporary Irish artists' work, and we don't have a lot of it hanging on the walls. You know, and it takes ages to sort of get around to it. So um, we'll hopefully be moving into a new home early next year, and that will be definitely a focus to do it. But. Uh, yeah, I'd happily laugh with John Watson no yeah,
0: So uh, what if he draws on some of those paintings? Let us ah, not think about such things. <laughs> uh, uh, Al, Al Hester, Mazur, lovely to see yeah, you. Yeah, lovely to see you C- again. Congrats on uh, first time fatherhood. I hope it brings you nothing but joy. Yeah, really and uh, best luck with the exhibition as Thanks. well. Thanks, the John. exhibition called Lost Time Found Again opens this Thursday 27th, runs until November the 14th at Gormley's Gallery in Dublin too. And you can find out full information on gormleys.com. I.E. Adapted from William Gibson's 2014 novel of the same name, The Peripheral stars Chloe Grace Moretz and Wicklow actor Jack Rayner as Flynn and Burton Fisher, siblings from 2032 America who make money playing video games or simulations for high-paying customers in order to afford much-needed medicine for their dying mother. When a new device arrives for Burton, it's Flynn. the more talented gamer who tries it out. The Peripheral plays with two worlds, the present in North Carolina, the future in the London of 2099. And soon after entering what they believe is a simulation, they find themselves in over their heads with a nine million bounty uh, for their... Uh, deaths I suppose for their heads on a platter series will have weekly releases on Prime Video Jen Gannon has been watching the first two episodes she's with me in studio this evening and even as I was going through the kind of the setup there there is a convolution there but mm. let's get the essence of who the two siblings are, and, and the family situation, Jan.
2: Yeah, so as you said, there there's Flynn, and that's your main protagonist, who's Chloe Grace Greats- Moretz, and she works in this package collection office, but it's also like a 3D printing shop, and she also seems to kind of fix tech for the community too, and then her brother is Burton, that's Jack Reynor, mm. and he's a war vet, he was a marine, an ex-marine, and he spends all his days in a Gulfstream caravan down the back of the family's garden, playing these virtual reality games for money so as I said he's a jockey that's what they call them for wealthy gamers he's kind of used to level up uh, in tournaments and win major cash prizes for them but his sister Flynn is actually the real star and she takes over when her brother is in a tight spot she takes over the game and she she earns this kind of legendary status in that world under her brother's name Um, but as he said when he receives this kind of mysterious headset from a a shady company that we don't know anything about it's a super advanced game Uh, he hands the over to Flynn, and right. she gets involved in it. That right.
0: Way. Well, let's have a listen to the moment when uh, Flynn brings that new device home for Jack, for for Burton, who's the Jack uh, Rayner character, mm. delivered to her at her workplace. She has played these games under her brother's name. She's the better player, but Burton, Jack Rayner, convinces her to try this new game. A little bit of language in the midst of this clip.
3: It looks weird.
4: What are all those silver prongs for? And there's no screen. Cutting-edge VR, Flynn. Folks want me to beta test it for a shitload of money, too. Put us in the clear for months. Why you? Turns out I'm one of the few jockeys ever to reach the hundredth level in Halcyon.
3: Come on, you never made it past level 83, the fire
4: caves. True enough, but someone else was using my avatar, apparently. Playing as Easy Ice, And she got herself all the way to level 107. Uh-uh. No, Burton. I don't have time for this shit. I gotta put dinner This here's on. the only way we're gonna pay for Mama's Tamasine. Come on, you know I'm proud of you, right? How good you are at this? shut up. You are so full of shit, I can't see how you stand yourself sometimes. I know, but it's true. I am proud of you. They pay by level? Time on the clock, straight up. The longer you're in, the more you earn. Like I said, working out the kinks.
0: Not a sound of wickler to be found anywhere there <laughs> in the voice of Jack Rayner as Burton and Chloe Grace Moretz as Flynn, his sister, in a clip there from the peripheral new Prime video series that Jen Gannon has, has been watching for us. I was asking you, Jen, as we were listening there, is the mother aspect of this important, the fact that they're trying to make money for her? or How much of a MacGuffin is that?
2: She is the MacGuffin. She's the MacGuffin in the bed. Um, basically, it's just to actually pinpoint, I think, the fact that we're living in a world... That's almost, you know, it's not Mm. the sci-fi that you expect as in the Kubrick kind of style sci-fi. It's not all like minimalistic and it's not, you know, white surfaces and there's nobody going around in a flying car. It's a believable, it's like minor tweaks to the existence that we're having at the moment. And with the mother, it's the fact that pharmaceutical prices have shot up to eye watering levels. They're paying a thousand dollars just for one painkiller for their mother to survive like Mm. the day. And that's why they have to keep on earning this money so she can. You know, extend her life basically. Uh, So that's kind of. But she's a ghost. She's not. You know, she's not a Mm. a central, integral character really in that way. And
0: I suppose we need to be careful in terms of giving away too much of the of the setup, but. It, it's important. They're playing a game, mm. you know, and it's, we hear it constantly <laughs> teenagers being told, "Get out, get your head out of that game, and go out into the real world." So are, are we? Are the the boundaries between fantasy and reality blurred a lot of the time? They
2: are, uh, and the thing about it is, it, it's extremely high concept. Um, so if you're into that high concept, highfalutin sci-fi, then strap yourself in because the peripheral it challenges you in that way. Because I think there's a lot of explaining. There's a lot of Exposition and plotting to wade through mm. in the first two episodes. Now I've seen four episodes. It does kind of settle down as it goes on, but like there's a lot of world building because, as you said, you're going between the real, you know, world of 2032 and then another world that's you know 70 years set in the future. So, mm. which is also on the surface, looks like a game, but is it a game? These so are all the that questions that you're with, yeah. asking. Yeah.
0: Which is the reality? Which is the real time? Exactly. Yeah. And,
2: and where do the consequences lie? in the when, when they happened in the game, do they have an effect on on their lives, you know, back in South Carolina or North Carolina? But like it does, it can feel exhausting. That's the thing. When you're watching it, you feel like you have to keep up the pace. You have to remember, you know, you're, because you're in you two in? worlds. It's like you know it's split there's twice as many rules to remember twice as many risks to remember twice as many characters and information that you're trying to digest all the time so it doesn't make it's not an easy mm. watch now the visuals are stunning there are some startling, beautiful sequences in it, I have to say. And it does have a kind of James Bond-esque pace to it when you're doing the chase scenes, you know, when the baddies are catching up on them in the video game, when you have invisible cars So this and isn't cheap sequences.
0: 1980s kind of graphics. No. This is serious, high-end stuff.
2: Exactly. And I will give a warning, if you are on the squeamish side, there is an incident in the first episode that you might want to avoid. I mean, it's like the bit in Marathon Man but not about teeth it's uh, eyes it concerns eyes right. so if you're not into Enough that kind said. of stuff skip that but you know those are the kind of things that are worth watching when you're you know you're gripped by that kind of stuff because it does look great but it's a lot to keep a hold yeah. of and remember uh, well, I
0: mentioned this 9 million bounty that ends up being on the head of Flynn the Chloe Grace mm. Moretz character this is after she goes back into a simulation in, in the London 2099 sequence she goes in for a second time because she's looking to find out about a drug that she was told would cure her mother and here she is coming back uh, to, to have a chat with her brother a strong language in the midst
4: of this someone from that company's trying to contact me what company milagros whatever the Columbian one he said someone put a hit on us for nine million dollars on the dark net <laughs> <laughs> fuck off y'all can laugh but he went a fair ways he was just trying to freak me out did he say why? No, he didn't say why. He said I just need to sign in again so he can help us. He's just trying to get you back into harness. I'll call him tomorrow, tell him to fuck off. Why not tonight? Because I've got company, Flynn. He's maybe a little too drunk to find his phone. <laughs> <laughs> hey, grab that 12-pack from the fridge, would you? You're too drunk to fetch it, you're too drunk to drink it. What's she talking about? Sim developer hired me to do a job. I your avatar, that is. Me and Flynn. Whatever's on your mind, might as well go ahead and say it. Connor. What about him? What we were just talking about. This current state that we all had born in and chose not to believe it. Like a nine million dollar bounty. Are you serious? You still got those drones in your car?
0: A $9 million bounty is what is on the head of uh, Flynn played by Chloe Grace Moretz. Her brother Jack uh, played by Jack Rayner there he has a whole bundle of ex-Marine pals who mm. are, are hanging about and they're obviously going to be a help for him in all the battles that he's going to have to fight but is it down to Chloe Moretz? Uh, Chloe Gris moretz and Jack Rayner do they
2: carry the series? Yeah this is the thing because uh, from my perspective like I wonder if all it, this the series offers itself is just the complexities of the plot line because mm. if you have a show where half the time the characters are supposed to be avatars in a game surely you should make the characters in the real world more three-dimensional and more realistic so they're not just rendered to empty pieces on a chessboard. they're not in this
0: case. They're they're not not.
2: and it's really hard to care what happens then to the Fisher family because there's no backstory there from the the episodes I've seen you don't see them interacting enough you don't see that backstory. I think the Wachowskis you know who did The Matrix they did a a great job doing this kind of thing mixing sci-fi with the kind of you know more human stories with Mm. Sense8 that was on Netflix and you know even though that plot line was sometimes really unwieldy they still managed to have a cast of really well-rounded characters
0: Nevertheless will you go back to it you've seen the first two episodes
2: I've seen the first four now and I think like Jack Reiner is perfectly serviceable as a lead man and he has this affable kind of action star quality and he does have the charisma and I think the sad thing is that um, Chloe Grace Bress it, it, it's just a bit of a cipher she's not she's right. like the avatar and she's playing an avatar in a game which is kind of sad yeah All So alright
0: so a mixed, mixed uh, review I think is what you're giving yeah us there, I mean
2: Jen? I think if you're into it once you you know how you fare with the pilot will determine or not whether you want whether to go forward to with it, it.
0: Yeah. alright we'll give the pilot a chance then Jen Gannon uh, talking to us there this evening about the peripheral on Prime video next episode will be available on prime video this friday Unlikely as it may seem in 2022, where all sorts of ills are blamed on the easy accessibility of pornography, the golden age of porn was said to be 1970s Los Angeles. A decade later, in the late 1980s, a young filmmaker thought the golden age of porn might make a good subject for a short film. He was right. Another decade later, he upgraded that short film to a feature film about a young nightclub dishwasher who becomes a porn star, starring Mark Wahlberg and Julianne Moore. Moore. The director was Paul Thomas Anderson. The film was Boogie Nights, released 25 years ago this very month in October 1997.
3: asking me This is the craziest party that could...
0: Dog Night there with their cover of Randy Newman's Mama Told Me, a strong feature, a song that features prominently rather in Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, released 25 years ago, as I said, this month with me in studio this evening, Stephen Benedict, to discuss the film, its impact and indeed the career of Paul Thomas Anderson. Stephen, a, a bit like Tarantino, I suppose, uh, Tobal Thomas Anderson has a penchant for using pop songs as an integral part of the action in his films. Uh, uh, but that's not the only similarity. There are there are big crossovers
5: between the two. Yeah, I mean, there are many filmmakers who use pop songs, but a yeah. few filmmakers use them as well. They really integrate them into the story. And as you can see there with Mama Told Me Not To Come, Randy Newman wrote that. It's about his first visit to a crazy LA party and it's played at an integral moment in the story where he leaves home and heads up to the to the house of, shall we say, iniquity.
0: Yeah, and of course, it has all sorts of double meanings when you think of a porn film. Yeah, Yeah.
5: And so, but there's other similarities between Tarantino and Anderson since you mentioned Tarantino. Um, They're both from Los Angeles and they're both self-taught filmmakers. Tarantino very famously worked in a video store for many years and then he went off to the Sundance Workshop to to develop uh, Reservoir Dogs. But Anderson is slightly different because at the age of seven, in school, he wrote in his notebook, my name is Paul Anderson. I want to be a writer, producer, director. And here's the thing, a special effects man. <laughs> I know how to do everything and I know everything. Please hire me. Now, cut to a little bit more than a decade later, he would enrolled in New York University to the film programme there. But he walked out after two days because the lecturer had the temerity to dismiss the movie The Terminator. Anderson has since dismissed film school, all film schools, as a con. And he says that he he learned more from listening to the director's commentaries on DVDs that you can learn from four years in film school. And he says, <laughs> he says that with DVDs and the internet, the information is right there if you want it. Yeah, so.
0: where, where does that leave you as a lecturer in a film school?
5: Well, the deal is that any student who quotes Anderson in the first week, they get a the f- complete collection of all his films on Blu-ray for free.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, anybody who's applying now for, 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 <laughs> for next year will know what they, how to get those videos or those DVDs. So Paul Thomas Anderson then, uh, where did he where did he actually learn was it really and truly do you think it was listening to <laughs> DVD commentaries
5: yeah well no I mean as you he said he, he grew up in Los Angeles He's, mm. that's the centre of filmmaking yeah. culture and both his parents were in show business and from an early age Anderson was actually skipping school he was playing hooky as they say in LA uh, to make short films and Boogie Nights was the second film his first film was called Sydney a couple of years earlier but it started as you said uh, as a short story a short film called The Dirk Diggler Story and it was a half hour piece that he'd made when he was 17 so it was actually 10 years after he wrote that note in the school book Right. Um, so by his late teens I mean he was making TV parodies of shows like Miami Vice and then he was going off and, and maybe this is the reason why he took exception to the lecture in NYU because he made a parody of The Terminator which is a film he clearly adores so you know th- that's, that's
0: possibly his yeah. annoyance and his reason for saying all film schools are rubbish <laughs> uh, let's have a listen uh, to Anderson then uh, on American television promoting Boogie Nights and he talks here about the origins yes. of the film?
6: I don't know. I kept playing with it, um, you know, and and I I wrote it after doing the short film. I wrote it as a a full-length documentary, taking that kind of spinal tap approach, you know, but by the time I sort of finished that, that format had kind of been worn out and done many times, and and I kind of realized I was really just sort of blatantly ripping off this spinal tap (laughs) thing, and I got to sort of find a new way to do this, and you know, and I don't know, somewhere in, t- in uh, ten years, two hours was added <laughs> you know, on top of the half hour. Yeah. And I just kind of figured, well, the way to do this is just kind of go nuts and just make it straight narrative, but really kind of just start writing and uh, wrote 300 pages of stuff and eventually had a shooting script of 186 pages.
0: Paul well, Thomas Anderson, there, talking about the origins of his epic drama *Boogie Nights*, premiered twenty-five years ago this month. Uh, Stephen Benedict with me in studio this evening. He, Anderson has made nine films, Stephen. Yeah, that's each right. one of them, I mean, critical, I suppose, really yeah. um, uh, successes. Mainstream audiences, though, di- has he has he managed that particular success within the film world? First of
5: all, yes, uh, eleven Oscar nominations, but he hasn't won yet. Yeah. I think the nearest he's come to a big hit is "There Will Be Blood." Okay, mm. but the thing is, he tackles difficult subject matter, and you know, can you just imagine trying to say to your friends, "Let's go off and make, watch a movie about the porn industry"? Yeah, and so he's not—he doesn't make movies that are sort of audience-friendly. But the truth about Boogie Nights is, the porn industry is just the milieu because really, it's about other things. You know, it's about the representation of uh, masculinity. It's about performance, excuse the pun. Yeah. Um, it's about misogyny and it's about media. And so, you know, Paul Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson makes Paul Thomas Anderson movies. He doesn't make genre pictures. And as I said, the stories that he makes, you know, the characters aren't user friendly and neither is it friendly to the audience. The Master, for example, is about a religious cult. Very, very difficult subject matter. And There Will Be Blood, as I mentioned, It's hardly mm. a date movie. And you wouldn't want to share coffee now with them. Daniel Plainview you know? No and,
0: and he never Anderson he doesn't give you a kind of a nice re- reassuring position he, he's in in difficult subjects and he's yes. not he's not pulling punches he's, he's laying out all the difficulties
5: Yeah and I think that's a really important thing you've got to remember he was only 27 when he wrote and directed Boogie Nights mm. and it's the work of an incredibly sh- mature filmmaker and somebody who has the, the the wherewithal or the confidence to say there are no easy answers to this to, to this um, subject and you know, I'm going to not bother trying to find the easy answer. And that's difficult for an audience because they're looking for a sort of a moral declaration yeah. at some point.
0: Yeah. So he has to he has to f- tread a very fine line. Yeah. And, uh, we have a clip of him here talking about how he did precisely that right. with, with Boogie Nights.
6: Yeah. I mean, I think there was something that I was upfront with um, the actors about and maybe, you know, it was was my confusion about the issue and 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 saying that, that that there's a there's a version of this movie that is confused and then and has to be okay and then i don't you know I, I support this as much as it really kind of turns me off and i'm confused about it and 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 we have points to make you know within this movie that we can put a period at the end of but it's okay to be elliptical about something if we are confused you know
0: there we go. Paul Thomas Anderson and uh, talking about the confusion of the film, of the subject, I suppose, of the mm. film of Boogie Nights, which is all very well. But,
5: uh, you know, is that just equivocation? Is that wanting to have it both ways? <laughs> um, well, I think the thing is, if he had, if the movie had not been a success, we would have been able to say, well, he hasn't come down mm. on one side or another. But because the movie a success, we're actually, we can understand the complexity of it and the subtlety of the characters. And the thing I think I'm watching again recently it is a quite a bleak film, but what he displays in spades is great affection for the characters. He's very, very sympathetic towards them. But I think the thing that really, that runs throughout all his work is not so much a equivocation. It's the theme of reinvention. OK, because if you look at Boogie Nights, Mark Wahlberg's character, Eddie Adams, as he you says he's a dishwasher guy in, in a restaurant late at night and he's he's reinvented as a porn star and he's given a new name, Dirk Diggler. And then when he becomes a porn star star, he's given a new name and that's Brock Landers. And if you then look forward to his next picture, Magnolia, you've got the character T.J. Mackey played by Tom Cruise, and he is sort of some sort of self-help motivational speaker, a truly obnoxious character. But he's covering up from the fact that his father abandoned him when he was a, j- a young child. The master um, Joaquin Phoenix plays a World War II veteran and he joins a religious cult which is the reinvention in itself and most recently Licorice Pizza which is a fantastic film it was on the cinema I don't think that many people went to see it that charts the relationship possibly problematic relationship between a teenage boy and a 25 year old woman he's still in school And together, they hurtle through a series of business adventures and job opportunities. For example, Alana, the 25-year-old woman, she tries at the beginning to be, uh, she works as a photographer's assistant. Then she tries acting. Then she tries politics. She tries selling uh, waterbeds. So Anderson, I think, is very, very interested in the entire idea of reinvention.
0: And what about, you know, all fiction is autobiographical. What about the stories that he's telling here? Right. What from his own life is he drawing on?
5: His parents were both in the entertainment That's right.
0: industry, uh, but in, in the legal and perfectly ordinary yes. entertainment yeah. industry. Well,
5: his father, um, Ernie Anderson, he adored his dad. Mm. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Ernie was a comic in the 60s and he played host on a TV show called Shock Theatre under the stage name of Goulardi. Now, Paul has named his production company Goulardi after yeah. his dad's name. So, um, and then Boogie Nights was released just after his father died and that's actually dedicated to his memory. But his mother, Edwina, is a slightly more complicated issue. Their connection is a little bit contentious and distant. When his parents divorced, he went to live with his mother and she was the direct opposite to his freewheeling, hair-raising dad. And sometimes, not always, you have these figures... Populating the screen, population the screen in some form or another. But the great thing is, they're both. He do, he doesn't cast out his mother completely. Uh, the portrayal of women in the films he makes is very complex and nuanced, and quite affectionate at times. And then they're very very difficult characters to be with.
0: Well, let's have a clip from Boogie Nights where uh, Eddie Adams, the Mark Wahlberg character, is confronted by his mother. Right. Uh, and then he, he leaves the family home uh, as he leaves off to, to go and work in the porn industry.
2: You leave here! You leave with what you've got! Nothing! Nothing! You understand me? God, God You're, not them. You're not I'm not stupid! Yes you are! Please, please!
6: Please don't be mean to me. I'm not being mean to you. You're just too stupid to see it. You don't know what I can do. You don't know I can do what I'm gonna do. What I'm gonna be. You don't know I'm good. I have good things that you don't know about, and I'm gonna be something. I am. (laughs)
0: Well, if uh, Eddie Adams played by Mark Wahlberg, if that's um, if that's autobiographical in the case of Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, clearly it was a very rowy, uh, rowy, fraught, rowy, yeah. fraught household. And um, does the film stand up 25 years later? It Stephen? certainly
5: does. Um, it's as I said, it's very bleak, but it goes in a great arc because it begins as a sort of, you know, Martin Scorsese mm-hmm. and Robert Altman got together to make this big rock opera. And that's the way it charges through the first half of the film. And then it goes on for a very downward spiral. Um, But there's a very, very strong point at the end of it. And I don't think anyone can come away from the film thinking it's a puerile teenage examination. Okay. It's the work yeah. of a very mature filmmaker. Alright, that's uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's
0: Boogie Nights which is 25 years old, released 25 years ago this month. Saturday, November the 5th, UCC are hosting a conference called Trad Talk exploring all aspects of traditional music from Shan Nose counters to a keynote address by Fintan Vallely. A talk that grabbed my attention was singer Jimmy Crowley remembering Irish musician and folklorist Michael Mick Maloney who died in July of this year. Uh, Jimmy is with us this evening to share views on that man that not only enhanced and added to a traditional music but also worked in the preservation of the traditional arts and I'm delighted to be joined from Cork by Jimmy Crowley uh, this evening Um, Let's have a listen to Mick Maloney first of all with a song called This Is My Uncle Dan McCann I've lately (laughs) wandered over here Mm -hmm. to search for me Uncle Dan he left the county Galway in the year of 51 Where he's gone to I don't know I've searched this country high and low But back to Galway I can't go without me Uncle Dan Have, Have you seen me Uncle Dan McCann? Typical bit of a Galway man He came out to the USA in the year of 51 Well if any thou neighbors living here Seen or heard of him anywhere You'd oblige me if you'd help me Find me Uncle Dan McCann Oh, wonderful, beautiful clarity in that uh, performance of Me Uncle Dan McCann, Mick Maloney and Jimmy Crowley joining us this evening to talk uh, about Mick and other things, I'm sure, as well. You've a strong connection with him uh, yourself,
3: uh, Jimmy. How did you, or when did you first hear him, or hear of him? Well, Sean, we we soldier together in America, and... uh, and in Ireland too, and um, Mick—he just poked puck, a lot of balls into my <laughs> into my goal, and I couldn't have survived without him. And he just recognised that I was—he thought I was authentic anyway—and he told people about me. People like down in Elkins Summer School, and I go, we go there teaching teaching ballads and chanos and everything else. And Mick just took me on the road with him. I did many many gigs and festivals. And he was just an enchanting, focused... Um, far Oostle, a very noble man hmm. with, with great great principles and but quite focused and uh, he didn't have he, he, he didn't suffer fools easily completely he, he was interested in the, in the pure traditional thing you know
0: Yeah because you mentioned you mentioned you know uh, that he thought you were authentic and I think very many people would probably agree with him on that particular aspect Jimmy but how important was that authenticity because that's what jumps off that song to me my uncle Dan McCann it's as clear as if he's standing in front of you telling you the story of his uncle Dan McCann that he's searching for. It's very direct.
3: Well, well, Sean, he, he did something too that was quite uncool and and he broke the mould of many kind of taboos about kind of Irish-American music, which is sometimes considered to be sentimental mm. and kind of musical, vaudeville, but Mick saw great goodness in that and he saw it as an extension. You know, the music came with the immigrants after the famine and... Okay, they kept playing the jigs and the reels like Michael Coleman and and kept it alive, but then something marvellous happened when they interacted with jazz instruments, with euphoniums and brass instruments, the Flanagan Brothers and all that. And they started to write within this new... in, in, more yeah. Im, embossed music. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic music. It's actually yeah. brilliant. Like. And he emigrated himself to the to the US in
0: 1973 and he worked as a, as a folk musician, but he also got interested in preserving the music and in academia. How did all that come about?
3: Well, that's a long story. Mick, Mick, t- Mick tells stories himself about how long it, t- it took him to do his PhD, but he was not wasting his time. He was working with the, the Native American Indians and Collecting and doing a lot of ethnographical work and and a lot of having a lot of fun as well he was great fun like a great guy to meet. but um i i came into his in, into his class several times in in n y u you know and he he actually had there was one uh, part of 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 the of of his course that had to do with the Irish show bands, like his students would have to answer questions about the show bands, you know isn't that
0: amazing? Yeah, the, well, the it, it, question? It, it kind of it it brings up an aspect of his character, I think, which is this idea of he didn't see a divide between uh, folk culture and what might be referred to as high culture. He clearly thought, yes, you can be you can be academic about traditional music, you can be academic about show bands, you can be all of those things. There is no
3: dividing line. There, there isn't. It's it's part of Irish life, and he saw it as. A, the cultural thing, the cosmos, you know, what brought people out on Saturday night and the kind of music they listened to. And people were listening to folk, pure folk, like the Johnsons, like Mick Spand and yeah. and Sean Murray at the same time, you know. And and to to this very day, Sean, you have, uh, you know, a huge interest in kind of that... To- two-four-time country thing that people need to dance to, that people just love it, you know? And he, was, he also championed
0: a, an influx of, of female singers in the, in the 1980s, I think this was in particular in, in America. What sort of singers was he bringing to the fore in that respect, Well, Jimmy?
3: I think Mick had something to do with the, the genesis of, of uh, Cherish the Ladies. I think he, he got them together originally and they were an all-female band playing flutes and fiddles and they had various singers... Sean, over the years, they had so many... I I couldn't keep track of all of them, but they had a lot of guest singers. But he did champion uh, females and and he he presented them and promoted them, you know?
0: And you yourself, of course, Jimmy, became involved from the academic standpoint as, as well, getting a degree in folklore and Irish from UCC. What did that bring to your own musical practice, would you say?
3: Well, it brought it brought a lot more to my life than to my musical practice. You know, um, it it kind of it makes you question things differently and ha- have a, more of an open mind about any argument, political or artistic or any evaluation. Like, kind of a, to go through even a basic BA, like, is is a is, is a mm. wonderful thing to do. Music the music is in me and it comes out and it's coming out more than ever thank God like in songs and nothing in the world like in the academic world would, would ever change that or would enhance it or would accelerate it you know you might learn a few be have to re- read music and do a few things like that but basically the music is in your soul I think and it kind of has to come out and so on Blood tide, you know? yeah, and 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 what about this? I mean,
0: I wonder if you had done a BA, would we have had the reggae version of the Boys of Fur Hill, for example? You know, would would your would your studies have stopped you doing that, or have they opened up worlds like that to you in a in a different way?
3: It's it, they have opened up worlds to me in many ways, but I don't think, Sean, I don't think it would have stopped the reggae version because that <laughs> that just came with meeting Declan Sennett and talking to Declan about that kind of closed guitar mm. style that the, the reggae guys have and we tried it out and it just went very well with a local song, you know. The other, <laughs> Yeah,
0: of course. Yeah, and people love that version of the song I think as well. I, I was looking at something uh, or heard about something that Jimmy spoke about in a video interview, in fact, with the Wall Street Journal in 2015. He talked about the fact that and this is a quote there are thousands of tunes in the tradition so when we sit down for rehearsal our job really isn't to find material it's to exclude material because we'd play all of them if we if we could. That's so right. How inclusive uh, how Catholic was his taste in that respect? Did he find it
3: hard to to say oh I'm not going to play that or I'm not going to deal with that? Well as I said earlier I, I think Mick was fairly like fairly uh, purist you know and uh he just loved the, the central nerve of Irish music, without too too much, you know, uh, ornamentation or too much development. Like it, it, that would. Lion artist on modern lines you know like there were songs I wrote Sean and I couldn't I couldn't say to Mick would you ever listen to this because I know he'd be quite not offended but he'd be kind of disappointed with me that I wouldn't be singing something more Sean <laughs> O'Sean and we'd kind of, have a, a pop phrase or something he wouldn't get it at all he just thought he saw me as this, this fella playing a central role, reviving kind of songs from the south you know and singing my own accent and all that and which I mean Paul McCartney did that as well and still wrote just yeah. Model stuff you know,
0: Absolutely and that not a bad model to be following. No. Jimmy, uh, lovely to to speak with you this evening. Thanks for joining us on the program Jimmy Crowley <laughs> there and the conference in UCC that Jimmy and others will be talking at is called Trad Talk. It'll be hosted by Tristan Rosenstock and Ocean Wood of Trad Ireland. It's at UCC Saturday November the 5th. Lunch included. Admission is free and you can find out full details on uh trad hyphen dot com